Hi guys, we're going to be discussing pop art in regards to Aura. Uh, doing this presentation is myself, Naya McClay. Hi, and I'm Leslie Gonzalez. I'm Gage Wendersky. This will be a brief and decisively inconclusive discussion on the Aura within the world of pop art. Uh, we came together around the idea of pop art and its inherent relationship to Aura because of our interests in fields ranging from consumer capitalism all the way to uh, gender and sexual inclusion and misrepresentation in media. Uh, pop art tackles the ideas of mass production, commodification, and consumer culture as well. Although pop art does not seem inherently political, its surface level political emptiness reflects and documents today's society. Um, okay, so the end of World War II was a cultural reset ushering a new set of cultural values. Division of labor, assembly line, production, and patriotism supported a boom of consumer culture. During the war, rationing was used to support the total war system, and women were included in the workforce for the first time. Um, so there was more of this feminized consumer uh, targeting that was used um, in regards to objects and their importance, and now kind of trying to target what media would kind of consider the feminine gaze in terms of how much women want to have, like, makeup objects and clothing and household objects. Um, things like cans of soup, for example, uh, were becoming more objects that were socially like, recognized and uh, easily consumed because it was, they were, they were no longer just producing for men. Military uniform patterns uh, were knitted for money. My machine knitting teacher was talking about that and I was like, whoa, we just- What were like they talking about? Um, and was talking about how like uh, during the World War II era, like um, a lot of people like started knitting to help with the war and whatnot. Um, and so like actually like to this day, I think like if you go on to um, what's it called? Uh, Red Cross, I believe. Mm -hmm. if not, um, and you, you like if you go on to Red Cross, you can find like um, knitted like patterns for knitting like uh like certain objects which i think is really interesting um and after the war uh the unused factory lab labor and marketing things such as sears houses uh, and the baby boom and the production of consumers post-war um really projected pop art and objecthood uh, and consumption into a really widespread uh cultural phenomena of popularity because now this post-war quote unquote peace that people were able to exist within made them want to buy things and have objects for themselves now that they could settle down and have this um, really marketed consumer focused nuclear family idea. There was also like there's also photos on her presentation of children knitting um, and it sort of reminded me of like my dad used to trap animals on his dad's farm for money and like in his town people would like grow pickles in their yards or grow cucumbers because there was like a pickle factory in their town and just like a a really local sort of like in the in the face of kind of poverty situations just sort of like using that loss of jobs or something to like draw 
a, a needed product out of people. Yeah, and I mean, that really, I feel like connects to one of the main ideologies behind pop art, which is this kind of pointing out of how ridiculous, like high art, fine art, um, like high art and fine art are placed on this pedestal of importance and validity that uh, quote unquote low art or poor art, um, where people were, were making things with what they had because people were working in factories and mothers were working who had never worked before and families were knitting um, like clothes for the war to try to make money and support themselves. Um, and this idea of pop art that was taking these objects that were everyday available, like you'd pass, you'd look at them and not pay attention twice, turning them into these high art objects um, to like kind of point out that what high art and fine art was doing did not need to be done in such a classist bourgeois kind of way. Like it could be applicable for the person who's running the pickle farm and has, you know, like a bunch of, of um, products and tools and materials around that they can kind of uh, dramatize or uh, make satirical and then use that satire and exaggeration and easy access uh, and, and turn that itself into high art, which really had never been done before, before pop art, as well as kitsch, um, those movements kind of came into play post-war. Also, I was thinking about um, how within the importance of the war in developing pop art, there was the rise of superheroes like um, uh, Wonder Woman and Superman and how they were used, uh, even, even Captain America, um, they were used as these uh, characters and icons for fighting for liberty and for power and success and we'll beat them type ad attitudes. And then that very specific like niche comic style that was created in that time period, um, like the colors and the like the stencil designs and the and the dots that they would use like on newspaper and newsprint in the day, um, completely was abducted. Uh, not in even the bad sense, but was taken into the hands of pop artists. And if you look at, I mean, there's dozens, countless examples of like comic book superhero style illustrations and paintings and prints used within pop art itself, which is such a crazy like pro-war to commodified artistic newspaper print style to comic books, to pop art, to consumer capitalism. It's a really interesting pipeline, I feel like. Yeah, it's very like oddly, uh, there's nothing personal about it. And I guess that's what a lot of pop art is too. It's just like, and just like popular culture in general is like not inherently personal, which mm -hmm. is interesting, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I immediately think of um, like serial cartoon ads. Like, do you remember like the tricks? commercials and the the fruit loop commercials and how they were like these are great these are for you eat cereal 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 and how this like cartoon cartoon creature was telling us that something was perfect and delicious for us to put in our bodies um just because we would see them all over all the time in our face and it was so easy like a cute little bunny holding cereal it's great it's colorful um and how they use like friendly fuzzy creatures and bright colors and like flashing lights to like target this audience that doesn't really understand what 
consumerism is or like what propaganda is but they're propagating with this like art form of I, I get if you're going to call commercials an art form um that's aimed like towards children that have no concept of an aura or of a high art or low art um or of marketing they're just being um they're just being passive receivers constantly for years to these like mass marketed um icons of consumption which i think is really like both weird fascinating and disturbing yeah that sort of reminds me of like the just pop art's use of everyday material and how those a lot of design is virtually invisible to us in everyday life and just how like the Campbell's soup cans in particular um and just other logos or product placement is sort of invisible but it it obviously inserts cultural values into our consciousness sort of just unconsciously just in the wording of an advertisement or like how a certain character is trustable or just seen as authentic somehow. The Neo Vanguard and Pop Art both poke fun at the borders between art and life. Pop Art deals directly with the reduction caused by reproduction and yet depends on the viewer's assumptions of values to differentiate itself from popular culture. I think there is like this this like unifying depersonalization that happens with pop art that they use um, very cognizantly um, to kind of point out this uh, like like classism that is needless and separation of uh, social groups and communities and high art and low art um, that is also inherently needless. I was kind of wondering when we were first learning about pop art if like the pop art pieces reproduced on handbags and like clothing and like as wallpaper could be like an undoing of the artist's intention but it really seems like that kind of dissolution was really foretold by the pop artists and they were really just playing in that space in which everything was reduced by reproduction. An application of Walter Benjamin's definition of the aura to pop art is paradoxical. Art survives in cooperation with reproducibility in the lens of pop art. His, his worries about the disintegration of meaning also reminded me of certain elements of pop culture that we experience as children and the way in which a reference to previous culture can become an original part of our own view of the world when we see something for the first time. Like in, in Pixar movies and things where older stories or other parts of popular culture are referenced, but those references really go over little kids' heads and they really just see like, everything in the movie as an original happening or an original object and don't really get that there's any meaning that's being dissolved. 
So I was thinking also about um, like how we were talking about uh, like characters, these fictionalized characters that we give life by projecting um, an aura onto them as if they were an actual individual. Uh, I feel like, I mean, we do the same thing with like those, those comic book characters that we would see in like 40s and 50s artwork and um, like the tricks are for kids, Bunny. Uh, we see these, these basically inanimate characters that we bestow an aura onto because the artist created those images um, for consumption with the intent to make them personified. And this personification is to force, I feel like almost an aura onto the object in order to get us, the consumer, to like normalize or almost welcome their um, like shoving in our face of this product. Um, but then at the same time, there's the pop art intent to um, like de-personify um, in terms of like human personification objects and and characters and instead of putting them in these like wonderful paintings that the artists spent hundreds of hours on using the most expensive paints um, to create a lemon painting or a still life they would just use the objects itself and just quickly get the image down because it's the same thing and there doesn't need to be this like persuasion or this intent to disillusion who these objects like actually are or if they even are a who or if they're just a what or if they can be both and it's I feel like it's it's really complicated but um I feel like uh, Robert Rauschenberg one of uh the better known pop artists who was a, a multimedia painter etc uh, if you're unfamiliar with his work I really recommend checking uh his work out but um he said uh, one time about how he saw potential beauty in almost anything, uh, which I th think this idea of using pop art to kind of promote beauty um, and in every day, every, every um, sorry, in everyday objects that wouldn't necessarily hold intrinsic beauty to, I guess, you know, quote unquote, common, the common eye. Um, he said, uh, quote, I, I really feel sorry for people who think things like soap dishes or mirrors or Coke bottles are ugly because they're, they're surrounded by things like that all day long and it must make them miserable. Uh, I just thought that this was like a, a cute little saying that he had, which kind of, I feel like brings to light the more positive and more human side almost of the pop art movement. Um, and also in connection to Aura because his ability to say how you can see these any everyday, just any objects that give nothing to you on first glance and imbue with them, imbue into them by you or by the artist's hands specifically in terms of, you know, uh, pop art, like this, this power and this autonomy and this aura, aura being um, and create from basically nothing a whole, a whole existence. Uh, whether that existence be in terms of trying to perpetuate uh, the idea that it's alive or real or can it uh, affect you or how it's its existence as the object itself uh, with its inherent 
satirical nature or exaggeration or even just where it's placed as a piece, the art itself has an, an aura now because the artist put physical human intention behind that. People can be introduced to something that has been mass produced and is very popular, but that one person who sees it at a certain time will like view that one thing as like original in that moment, if that makes sense. Uh, I guess um, just in case that doesn't make sense when I say that out loud, I'm, I'm just going to like repeat what Gage said, like how um, in Pixar films, for example, just in Pixar films and other films in general, actually, um, there are like pop culture references constantly being made or like, um, or just like um, objects from popular culture that are being displayed, but we never truly process that it's, it has its own like history and context, but in that moment, it is like uniquely um, a part of that film only. And that kind of also makes me think of like, if someone like, um, like an alien from like Mars were to come down to earth and like, look at an Andy Warhol painting, like the, like, let's say the Marilyn Monroe series, they wouldn't know who this woman is. Um, so even though the painting itself is literally like, literally the epitome of like, mass production like I guess the painting would be the most original form of Marilyn Monroe the Martian has ever like witnessed or um, encountered I think of like Roy Lichten a yeah. lot yeah and like how it seemed as though like all a lot of his paintings were like very much so like uh cartoony comic-y looking mm -hmm. you know and it's just so interesting um how like especially like even within like the title of the painting, it's so ambiguous, like girl in bathtub. And so mm -hmm. it kind of like almost like, it, I guess like, I feel like it can make uh, looking at it and thinking of this painting more like easy to relate to, if that makes sense, because it's not like um, someone in particular, it's just this human, like this girl. And I mean, that like brings up some questions uh that about like objectification to the point of objecthood. Um, I feel like, which is like what happens when someone, especially a public figure, because it, I mean, it happens much more with public figures than like me. Um, what happens when somebody is no longer thought of as a human with thought and emotion because they become iconified, like in turn, like they're, they're made into an icon or a picture or like an image. Um, like the the photo of Che that is reproduced everywhere, the print of of his uh, bust. Um, like, what happens to that person, that image of themselves, when it's unable to be separated from like objecthood? And does the general public uh, conceive a character with predetermined thoughts? Like, when they see those things, are they assuming about? that individual are they placing their assumptions which then for them become their own realities because they have no idea about the actual person because it's entirely based off of an image or a reproduction um does like what validity does that hold and does that imbue the image with its own aura itself or does it like where or when do you break away from your own um, perceptions of what you're placing onto an object that you're viewing and if that happens to be the image of a person 
like what are the consequences and the realities of that assumption or projection? Um, and does that like create the birth of a hollow character, like a hollow figure or object? Um, lots of questions. I don't know if there's necessarily concise answers. Uh, specifically like uh, female public figures usually tend to really go through that, um, through that process. I, I guess you could call it a process, right? Or like they um, are no longer seen as like this human, but rather like um, like an image of a like of a girl, which is funny because it's like that, it's just them, um, which I think is really interesting and in how like, um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because like um, Walter Benjamin's like, like whole like concern with like uh, mass production um, seems to really only apply to like um, issues of like, uh, I guess, um, identity and like um, and characters in general like in terms of pop art because we're really only talking about pop art and like Walter Benjamin's like idea of like uh, of like mass production it seems as though like he's kind of like concerned um, for the wrong reasons if that makes sense like he's concerned yeah. for object sakes but not women or like humans, which I think is really interesting because it's it's more clear that it's uh, this this is an issue within like actual people and not within objects. So yeah, I think Walter Benjamin should have reevaluated like his thought process for sure. We have come to the consensus that in the consideration of art, movements can't be understood from one point of view but rather have to be dissected and applied to multiple cultural, historical, and interpersonal knowledge systems. The image, the object, and their shared and individual auras both undergo shifts through the process of commodification and reproduction, alienating them from their original context and purpose, cutting the maternal tie between the artist's birthing of the work and the imbuing of singular individualistic aura within the work, work itself. Here begins the engaging of a cyclical process of sacralization and detachment. Our understanding of the aura in pop art is entangled with the disintegration of identity, objecthood, value, and pop art is sort of a rebuttal to Walter Benjamin's ideas of reproducibility and consumerism destroying the aura because pop art allows reinterpretation and a collage of ideas. Pop art is aware of the decontextualization of images, sacralizing the new experience. It creates a rebirth of authenticity and just something that can be recognized as new and authentic, even if it is a reproduction. Thank you guys for listening to us talk about pop art and the aura. Uh, up next, we're going to have a discussion about kitsch and the aura. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Uh, this is Naya McClay. Leslie Gonzalez. Gage Wendersky.